This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute, the global public square for the business of space. Join us at interastra.space. And we're listening to the downlink. We're listening to everything that's going on and we hear the information about the solar array not deploying and it was like, oh boy. And we started pulling pictures and drawings and diagrams and tool lists and we know you're getting ready in the airlock. I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi, I'm Kathy Sullivan, and I'm an explorer. Exploring doesn't always have to involve going to some remote or exotic place. It simply requires your commitment to put curiosity into action. So join me on this podcast journey as I reflect on lessons learned from life so far and from my brilliant and ever inquisitive guests. We'll explore together in this very moment from right where you are. Spaceship not required. Welcome to Kathy Sullivan Explores. Before we take off, I have a gift for you. I believe that no matter where you are today, an active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at kathysullivanexplores.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on Earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you and also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to kathysullivanexplores.com. My guest today is former chief of the EVA Robotics and Crew Systems Operations Division at NASA, Sue Rainwater. Her skills contributed to the successes of the Space Shuttle, the Hubble Telescope, the International Space Station. In fact, she played such a pivotal part in the first Hubble servicing mission that they brought two ladders into mission control instead of just one when the time came to hang the crew plaque at the end of the mission. This was the first, and as far as I know, still the only time that the two co-leaders of the spacewalking team hung the plaque together, one of the highest honors in NASA flight control. If you've read my book, Handprints on Hubble, You'll know I goofed when I wrote about that moment, assigning the honor just to Sue's EVA partner, Jim Thornton. She's been nothing but gracious with me about that glaring omission, but I'm glad to be able to set the record straight here. So on the podcast today, you'll hear about the bookish kid from Michigan, whose first memories of schooling were in the UK, and the culture shock she felt on returning to the United States. Sue also remembers the hands-on building projects her father arranged during the holidays and moving south to study on the first step of the journey that took her to NASA. And she'll tell us a lot about the many years she spent there. From her NASA years, you'll also discover how visits to Home Depot actually contributed to the building and making and repair success of Hubble. Joining me today from her home in South Carolina is a longtime colleague and friend, Sue Rainwater. Uh, Sue is one of those people that played an integral part of making any number of my space flights possible for many, many years and, and equipping me to succeed at them. So, Sue, welcome. Thank you. Nice to see you, Kathy. Yeah, good to see you again. So, you and I talked some long time ago now, several years ago, when I interviewed you, sort of oral history fashion, to get your story and 
make sure I could tell it well in my book, Handprints on Hubble. But I'd like to do a little bit of that same thing again, because you have a very interesting pathway that led you to space, to the space program. So how about wind the tape all the way backwards to your, your very early childhood and paint a bit of picture for us of where you grew up, what, what your family was like, what your interests were like. Who were you as a five-year-old? So I was, I was born in Michigan. My father um, was an automotive engineer with Ford. My mother was a stay-at-home mom with four kids. They were both from extremely humble beginnings. My mother was born in Wales and emigrated to the U.S. at the age of 18 with uh, very little, literally one suitcase, and that was it, to live with an aunt because there was no opportunities in Wales at the time, right after the war. So at the age of three, my dad had the, uh, my age of three, my dad had the opportunity to go overseas with Ford. So we moved over to just outside of London and I lived there for eight years. So lived in a, in a small little town, went to a very small girls school, private school with um, all girls, uniforms, very, 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 very British, if you can imagine. And so for eight years, that was my life. And I was very, very sheltered, I guess, if you will. It was an idyllic childhood, I would say. And then moved back to Michigan at the age of 11 and went to a suburban high school. I was very, um, very bookish. I mean, all of my relatives will tell you all they remember of me at that time is me in the corner with a book. Literally, <laughs> that's what they remember of me. That had to be quite a culture shock coming from oh my at, gosh. At age 11 from the English setting to the American setting. What struck you most? Do you remember? Oh, um, it was terrifying. I mean, we went from a very structured, literally, uniforms and all-girls school, very small, to you had to pick what you were going to wear. You had to pick what <laughs> you were going to wear to school. And you had to know how to go to your next class. And I mean, it was very, very frightening. And was there sort of already a bit of a fashion contest among the girls for oh, gosh. all the kids for what oh, you yes. wearing? Yes, and I failed miserably <laughs> from day one. Day one. I still do to this day, but that's okay. Yeah. So that was, you know, that was kind of my intro to U.S. schooling, public schooling. And I was, so I was always very much the nerd, the non-participant. Non-conforming. What were your reading interests in those early ages? Science fiction? No, you know, I, I never was really into science fiction, although, you know, the Chronicles of Narnia, if you can call that science fiction. That was definitely a favorite. Anything I could get my hands on, honestly. Yeah, but not the rocket ship kind of science fiction, more sort of fantasy fiction. Yeah, yeah. Like Narnia. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. definitely, yeah. definitely. Biography. I remember around that age starting to read, I mean, I'm sure they were young adult or, or teenage-oriented uh, biographies, but it was they were really powerful influences mm-hmm. on me because I saw other kinds of lives than the one I was living. Definitely, definitely. Florence Nightingale, that was a big one I remember reading. Yeah. All those kind of books. So not sporty, not super sociable. Nope, nope, not at all. <laughs> not at all. And then, so in high school, then it came, and I was a good student, but I was by no means the best. I mean, I went to a very competitive high school. Um, I would say some of my schoolmates went to Ivy League schools, and there was certainly no expectation that I would do the same. I mean, again, one-income household. I'm the third of four kids. My two older siblings went to community college and then went on to four-year schools and got degrees in accounting. 
um, and did very well. But when it came to taking the, uh, the PSAT and the SAT tests, I did very well. And so I started getting letters from all these schools. So it sort of broadened my horizons. Yeah. How big was your high school? I think it was about 2,000 students, four grades. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's big. Yeah, yeah, it was big. It was big. So I got a letter from Georgia Tech, which I immediately tossed in the trash because, Georgia, <laughs> you know, who's going to go to Georgia from Michigan? And uh, my mom well, actually... people who like warmer winters. <laughs> yeah, right. My mom actually fished it out and looked at it and said, you know, this kind of looks interesting. She had her big book of Barron's Colleges or whatever it was called. Oh, right. And lo and behold, that's where I ended up going to school. So what swung the day, actually? You just took a second look at it or you just appeased your mother or... Uh, no, well, we looked at it and it was actually... Um, <laughs> there was no application fee. So we thought, what the heck? Yeah. You know, and uh, so I applied there and University of Michigan and got accepted to both. Georgia Tech had a very good cooperative education plan, as does U of M. Georgia Tech is a smaller school. The tuition costs were comparable. And it just kind of fell out that that seemed to be the right one. And this, you know, nowadays... Parents will take their kids on grand college tours if, if they're able to, you know, a dozen campuses. Right, yeah. Scout out the look and feel. I, I presume that you guys didn't do that kind of thing. No, we did go to Georgia Tech. That was the only oh, okay. one we went to on spring break. Do you, what do you remember about that visit? You know, they had a very, very vivacious young person leading the tour. And she was very interesting. And it was just interesting to see the campus. Even though it's a, a downtown school, it was unlike anything I'd ever experienced. Had you kind of already set, I mean, if you go to Georgia Tech as a rule, I would think, because you've got some sense that you want to be in, in the sciences or in engineering. What was your sense of direction at that point? I did think that I wanted to go into engineering at that point. My, as I said, my father was an engineer, and he was a big, huge influence in my life. How so? Dinner table conversation or involving you in projects? What were, what were the things that really influenced you the, the most deeply? Well, both. I mean, part of it was, and, and not not the only thing was, but my parents were, having come from such humble beginnings, were very much of, you need to have an education that will enable you to have a career that you can support yourself. Both the sons and the daughters. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. There was no such yeah. thing as a, this is a, a boy task or, or a girl task. Ah, Everything in our in our house was every summer. My dad had a major project, whether it be residing the house or knocking out a wall and putting in a new door or something. And all kids had to line up, and we all had our tasks. It was very hands on. Yeah, yeah, and a lot of confidence building through that. I would imagine you to come to learn. I mm -hmm. there's these interesting things I can do. Right, right, definitely, definitely. Yeah. Something in engineering had your attention by the time you throw your hat in the ring for Georgia Tech. What kind of time frame would that be? What year would that have been? Uh, 79, 1979. Okay. So how much had you been following the space program up to that time? Was that a, a thing in your world? Not at all. Not huh. at all. And I did not follow it all at all through college. Huh. The only reason that I interviewed with NASA was because when I graduated, so I'd been in Atlanta for six years. I discovered that I did like the South. I had other interviews back in Michigan and in other parts of the country, but 
I did like the South and I did like the idea of being closer to my friends that I had already made. And I interviewed at Marshall Space Flight Center, which is in Huntsville, Alabama. I had friends that had lived that lived in, in Huntsville, worked for some contractors over there. And they said, hey, why don't you interview with NASA? I hear they're coming over. And I thought, well, okay. Literally knowing nothing about it. I mean, I remembered when Columbia landed after its first flight because I was co-oping yeah. at the time and I was at work. But I mean, the, the whole lunar landing saga was oh, just yes. a small blip in your, in your mind. Yeah. I remember watching that on TV, but yeah, it was a television spectacle. Yeah. Right. I, I always kind of felt like I stole my, my spot from one of those real space geeks that had been <laughs> wanting to, wanting to work there for so long. And I just kind of lucked into it. It fell into my lap. Wow. I would have thought coming from Michigan, a father in the automotive business and so on and so forth. Yeah, I would have suspected or guessed that your first inclination would have been something automotive because it you know, it had a familiarity. Right. And I did. That was one of my other offers was back back in Michigan. And when I got this offer and another one, I was talking to my dad about it. And it was funny because I was inclined to take the one in the automotive industry because the salary was far greater than with NASA. And my dad, I remember this, he was very, um, I know he didn't want to influence me, but inside I know he was thinking, are you crazy? You don't want to go work at NASA? (laughs) He was like, well, you know, the money will come and that's enough to pay your bills, but that does sound very interesting. (laughs) Good old dad. Oh, I know. Yeah. And he, oh gosh, dad was the biggest space nut throughout my career. I mean, he was yeah. he was a huge huge spaceman. I love it. So, what was your first job? Uh, had you interned in anything spacey during your Georgia Tech years? No, I did not. So, what was your first role at NASA? Tell us a little bit about the Marshall Space Flight Center for those who don't know, because NASA NASA has about eight or nine locations around the country, but each one sort of has its particular theme and and DNA. So, what is Marshall's theme and DNA? So, Marshall. It is primarily known for being a center of excellence for propulsion, um, which was not what I went there for. Um, They also do a lot with um, the space lab missions on the shuttle flights, and they do a lot with with the space station. They do a lot with with the payloads. Um, But what I was working on was the development of the tools and the crew aids for the Hubble Space Telescope before it was deployed, which was where you and I crossed paths, obviously. Yeah. They had a large water tank there that was used for developing the procedures and the tools. Yeah, at the time it was the only neutral buoyancy, as it's called, facility in NASA that was large enough to do spacewalk simulations. Mm-hmm. Right. Getting underwater where you can adjust all the weights perfectly so that you don't pop to the surface or sink is kind of a close approximation of working in the microgravity of outer space. Right, it was the one that was largest, definitely, to build the uh, the Hubble yeah. mock-up. The one in, in Houston that was used for training was much smaller at that time. Yeah, very shallow in Houston comparison. Yeah, right. So when you say develop the tools and so forth, I mean, what's that like? I think most people probably think of the astronauts that repaired Hubble, and some of what you see them doing looks like that's a ratchet wrench, that's a socket wrench, that's something I could buy at Home Depot, but. Why was it a special challenge to figure out the tools for the Hubble? 
Well, in some ways, we did start at times with going to Home Depot and pulling things off the shelf. And then you figure out, okay, how do you adapt this so that somebody who's wearing this Michelin Man suit can use this with the bulky gloves and who's floating around in space? How then can they use this to um, work on these very delicate connectors and so on and so forth? So you start with something that you're familiar with, and then you adapt it and you modify it. How obvious from the start are the adaptations or how much do you have to, do you discover what needs to be done by putting someone in a spacesuit and letting them work? Or sometimes you can see in advance, we're gonna, gee, we're going to definitely have to make these handles bigger so that a fat hand can use them? Or It's a combination. It's a combination. It's trial and error. You definitely try and do as much as you can ahead of time because the water time was very precious, both in times of, of money and you don't get that much of it. So you want to be as prepared as you can. Um, and we would, we, so we would spend a lot of time in the, in the machine shop. I had, I had a great boss at the time, Fred Sanders, who was, um, a, he, uh, you remember Fred, he was a real character, but he took me under his wing and we would go in and we'd make a few mods and then we'd go out and we'd try it on a, on a mock-up in the, in the high bay. And then we'd go back and we'd tweak it a little bit more. And then we'd go in the pool and we'd try it in scuba and we'd think, well, that didn't work. And so it was, it's an iter- iterative process. Yeah. And then periodically you guys would come in from Houston and you'd say, well, that didn't work at all. And so we'd be back to the drawing board. Did you have chances to get in? So the spacesuits that are used in those water tank simulations are still today. They are the same suit that you're going to be wearing when you do a real spacewalk. They came off the same production line. They're built the same way. But one of them that came off the line, they earmarked for never going to outer space, only being used in the water. And so it didn't, it did not have all the electronics and things in the, in the life support backpack, for example, it had a shell of the same shape and volume. So you were, you were as clunky in the underwater suit as you were going to be in the spacesuit. But did you get to get in, in some of the underwater spacesuits and actually experience it with the gloves and everything? I did. And it was invaluable experience. I did that several times and talk about eye opening. And it's still to this day, I remember those, those experiences. The, oh my gosh, we're realizing that you can't move your limbs in the same, not even in the same directions, in the same dimensions. Your arms, you can't necessarily, if you want to move it, you have to kind of go up and over as opposed to you're kind of reaching around the DCM. I'm, I'm not putting this in the, in the right words, but um, you, you can't necessarily get there from here. So you're having yeah. to constantly modify and really consciously think about your movements. And you're flailing around at first. You're really a floppy fish until you figure it out. <laughs> yeah, because the the shoulder is meant to be able to move in quote unquote all the same ways your shoulder can, mm-hmm. but it's a completely different and clunkier mechanical joint, unlike your bone and, and tissue one. So like, and you, and yeah, you're you're fat in the back because of the lysosome backpack, and you're fat in the front because you've got a computer on your chest. So right, right. Yeah. yeah. And the, oh my gosh, is the helmet just looking out through the helmet and, and thinking about what this would be like in orbit. Your peripheral vision is restricted. And above your head, I mean, you, you go to look above your head and you realize, well, I can't. Well, you're just looking at the top of the inside of the helmet. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. So it's, it's surreal. 
<laughs> what about the experience once you got a little used to that? Did, did you like the the sense of zero gravity? Oh, yeah, it was amazing. Just as, you know, same as with the scuba diving in the tank. I mean, that was that I loved that. We would go in before the tests and set up the equipment. And then after the test, run down and pull out the stuff that couldn't stay in overnight. You know, I just loved that. You already said you were in the machine shop sometime, actually hands-on building the tools. But what what's that whole cycle? I mean, you get an idea, or let's let's take a tool that you know, didn't exist. It didn't come off the Home Depot shelf. Maybe the basic idea of it did, like the the tool that's used that was used on Hubble to remove the electrical connectors. Started on a mental notion of well, it's got to kind of be like a pair of pliers. But then there were a lot of a lot of differences about working on Hubble, big connectors, difficult to turn, very close together. How do you get something skinny enough to get in between them? Blah, blah, blah. So what was it like when you had to completely imagine a tool that didn't exist? Then you would sit down. I mean, there, there was a, a large team of people that did all of this work. And there was a great number of, of tools. And the more simple ones, there was fewer people that worked on them. But when you came with something that was a clean sheet, you would sit down with, with the, the engineering designers and you'd say, okay, here's what we're thinking. And, and they would come back with a design and then you'd, you'd iterate back and forth on that from, okay, from an operational perspective, here's what we need it to do. And they'd say, well, what do you think of this? Kind of the same thing back and forth. Then you'd get a mock-up build or built or a prototype. And then you'd try that out. So there are some things that you could you could whip up a prototype easily. And then there's some things that you would just have to start from scratch. And then there was a large team of people, both from, from the Marshall engineering folks and then the, the Lockheed folks out in Sunnyvale. and Lockheed being the company that was actually building the real telescope. Correct. Yes. Yes. And they also built some of the, some of the tools. And then at some point Goddard came in and the Houston folks would come in. So, that, I mean, it, it really took a village to do this, right? Yeah, it became a very complex, on NASA's behalf, Marshall was the lead for coming up with the idea and designing and putting out the contracts to build the telescope. And Lockheed was building it. And then later, once the telescope was in orbit, another NASA location, Goddard, stepped in to take over the the ongoing, the, the five, five or six missions of actually fixing it and, and still coming up with new tools and still finding new things that had to be done because something broke that we did not initially plan on being able to repair. And they would say, really? Are we really not going to repair that? I think we can repair that and create something new. So you started what year with NASA? 85. That's about the same time I got assigned to Hubble, and we thought it was going to launch in like less than two years, just Mm -hmm. over a year, right? Right. Got stretched out a whole lot. When did you first get to go out to California where Hubble was being built and see the real telescope? Probably shortly into my Marshall career, I think. 85, early 86? Yeah, probably so. Mm -hmm. I mean, anytime you're around flight hardware, to me, that's incredible. I mean, just going going into the, the vehicle assembly test area, I think that's what Beta stood for, which is the room in which the vehicle was assembled. Yeah, room room is not exactly the no. right word, right? right. <laughs> tell me, tell, describe the Veda. It's a, what they call a 10K clean room. So it's um, incredibly, incredibly high filtration clean room environment because the telescope 
had to maintain such a clean environment in order to keep the optics clean. So in order to get into this room... Like this is substantially cleaner than a hospital ER. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah, I, I'm, I, I can't think of an analogy, but it, it was crazy just to get in there. So to get in there, you had to... First of all, I, they would tell you, you know, you couldn't use certain soaps. You know, women were told, certainly do not wear any sort of makeup. Or perfume. Or perfume, yes, exactly. You had to put on what they called a bunny suit, which was this white protective garment that covered you from head to toe, much like a contamination suit, if you will, that you might see. And you had little booties that went on over it. And then you then you had to um, tape the wrists and the boots onto you. Tape the glove to the sleeve and right. the boot to your pant leg. Right, yeah. right. And then if you were going to actually touch the vehicle, you had a, um, a static discharge strap. Um, that you like would, a grounding strap? Yes, a grounding strap, right. And then you went through an airlock which was a set of doors that went into the room. And in that airlock, there was um, an air shower that blew any, any dust or any particles off of you. And then that purged. And then you went into this incredible room, which was just, you looked up and there was the telescope, this incredible silver, majestic beast with some platforms around it. But it was just amazing. Yeah. And the, the room, you know, the scale of the room was pretty mind-boggling. I, somebody, I remember, gave me the statistic. It was very tall. I mean, it, it, the Hubble's about the size of a school bus. The building was way taller than that. And the wall on your left when you came in was the wall that all the air came into the, into the room through, through all those batteries and filters that you mentioned. That wall was the size of a basketball court stood on its end. Basketball court's a pretty familiar scale to a lot of people. So that was that's always seemed to me an easy way to give a sense of how ginormous this room was. Right, right. I, I felt like an ant when I was in the Veda. And the thing with the Veda was there was never, there's very few pieces of furniture, if you will, in there to give you any sense of scale because anything that's in there has to be cleaned. Yeah, super clean. Right. So there's nothing in there to diminish the size of what you were seeing other than what has to be in there for people that are working on the vehicle. Yeah. I mean, the pe- the people are the only thing that gives right. you a sense of the scale. Yeah. You get stand at the far end of the room and look back, you see these little, little itty bitty things at the bottom and this big telescope and structure above you. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. This is, this is a really huge place. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I remember the, I think it was the first time I went through that air shower. I forget who was leading us in. It was, it was a show and tell visit pretty much for, me and my, my crewmate, Bruce, who were going to be the spacewalkers on the flight that took Hubble to orbit. But the guy who was leading us through, just as a bit of a joke, in that air shower, started doing all the, the motions that you would do in a, in a shower, rubbing his arm and cleaning his armpits. <laughs> it, was, it was pretty comic. So tell us more about Hubble itself. What did you do that first visit? Did you get to climb up the platforms and see the whole, every side of it and all around it? We did. I don't remember the specifics of that visit. It was probably a tool fit check of some sort because it, when you when you got to flight hardware being made or even perhaps a high fidelity mock-up, then you would go out and you would verify that indeed it fit on the real vehicle because your your models, your your full-scale mock-ups that you built are not built to flight specifications because you can't necessarily afford to build 
a high fidelity replica replica of the vehicle. So you want to make sure that it fits before you launch that vehicle. So we would go out there and we'd say, okay, yeah, this fits or it doesn't fit. But when you go out there and then you see the real vehicle and then you've got all the real electrical cables and you've got the the multi-layer insulation in place, and then you get a full appreciation of, oh, wow, this is even more complex than I realized. Yeah, because the models that we use underwater to train on, you don't attempt to make them perfectly accurate to all the cables and you don't cover them with the insulation. So, I mean, you often get out to the real spacecraft and discover, I thought my hand would fit in there. Mm -hmm. Because it always fit in there when we practiced in the water, but there's this other thing on the real telescope and my hand doesn't fit there. Now, what are we going to do? Right, right. The training, the simulations have to be a full complement of the real vehicle where, where you can get it, photographs of the real vehicle, maybe a, a higher fidelity 1G simulator, and then the water tank mock-ups. Because the water tank mock-ups, you know, if you put all of those high fidelity aspects in there, they would degrade after the first two runs and you'd, you'd be done. Yeah, you'd be in perpetual maintenance. Right. Yeah. What do you recall? I mean, it's one thing to see. I mean, this is a precious, elegant very precise, multi-billion dollar, because it was a billion dollar plus telescope. And now you're walking up to it with a wrench in your hand and going to put the wrench on that thing and, you know, turn a bolt or or do something. And I'm curious what you remember of the first, what was going through your mind the first time you did that? Well, to be precise, I never did that on the vehicle only one time I would know that I did that. It was always the crew members who did that because they were the ones who needed the experience. Well, I think we made you crank out a solar array once. Or That's, something. Yes, you did. That's <laughs> Bruce, Bruce did that to me. And I still remember that. And talk about my heart pounding. Don't want to screw that one up. You know, you're thinking righty tighty, lefty loosey. <laughs> if I break this, what happens now? Exactly. Exactly. You know, I'm, you know, I'm this, 25-year-old kid from Huntsville, Alabama coming out here. I don't want to screw up this. But just the sheer responsibility and awesomeness. I mean, you know, my my flight hardware position is always hands firmly clasped behind my back, right? Right. So I don't break anything. Yeah. It is amazing. I remember that solar array day very vividly. You you seriously did not want to do that. (laughs) (laughs) so off we go finally in april of 1990 and take hubble to orbit and you stayed like a number of people who were involved in the spacewalking and maintenance both from marshall and lockheed and and from the from houston from johnson and houston the normal career pattern for a lockheed engineer or nasa engineer would be to move from one project to another and you do a whole array of things in the course of your career but there were a bunch of you that managed to stay really close to Hubble all the way through and be involved in every one of the servicing missions. I'd like to know what it was like for you in Mission Control Center during our flight when we took Hubble to orbit, and we had exactly the scenario that we had planned for come up, one of the solar arrays that deployed kind of like a roll-down curtain. One of them didn't roll out properly, and all of a sudden Bruce and I are scrambling to head to the airlock and go outside and fix it. What was that experience like for you on the ground? So at that point, I had transferred to Johnson Space Center, 
And I was actually working in mission control as a flight controller. I was in the what they call the back room. Jim Thornton was the, the front room EVA flight controller. So the flight director is the lead person in mission control who is in charge of the room. And, he, and the person that he is uh, relying on for the expertise on spacewalks is the EVA or extravehicular activity flight controller. Okay. And that guy's got a bunch of people supporting him. So exactly. you can say, I, I, somebody look up this. I need an answer to that. Right. You, right. You've got that squad. Right. And I was that person in the back room for Jim on that day. And we're listening to the downlink. We're listening to everything that's going on. And we hear the information about the solar array not deploying. And it was like, oh, boy. And we started pulling pictures and drawings and diagrams and tool lists and we know you're getting ready in the airlock. And as you know, the, the actual outcome was you got so close, but you didn't get to go. <laughs> yeah, got to stare at the wall of the airlock while Hubble right. was deployed. <laughs> yeah, the only two people in the world who didn't get to see it deploy. <laughs> yeah, had worked on it for five years. Right. Was that your first mission working in mission control for a real flight? Yes. Oh, my gosh. It was huge earn the right to be in mission control. And then, then not, not long after you were in where, where Thornton was, you were the front room person. Right. Yeah. For the first servicing mission. Right. So the first servicing mission, as you know, was um, it was do or die for Hubble because after deployment was when we discovered that the mirror was very unfortunately ground imperfectly. The wrong shape by a fraction of a human hair. Right. And so there was a, uh, very concerted effort to figure out how are we going to fix this. And some very brilliant engineers came up with a specific fix for that. And then also figured out, okay, we've got a whole bunch of other things that we need to do on this first servicing mission. Because Hubble was designed to be serviced. And there was a lot of other things that needed to be done. But that mission was such high visibility. And EVA, you know, EVA or spacewalks, was not a discipline that had had much attention at all in mission control or across NASA for some time. Pre-Challenger, there had been quite a bit of activity, but since Challenger, there had not. There was some that was done, and then... There were a couple in 1984 right. that were pretty, I would say, they were moderately complex. Mm-hmm. I would argue that nothing as complex as the Hubble servicing missions had ever been done in NASA's history. There'd been two spacecraft repair or retrieval missions before, and those were certainly complicated. But the scale and granularity of the complexity Mm -hmm. of Hubble, I I think, exceeded that by a lot. And then the Intelsat repair mission revealed some integration aspects of the EVA programmatic aspects and community that people felt that it needed more of a magnifying glass on it. So in addition to the political aspects at the national level, there was an extra microscope put on it at the programmatic level. It couldn't have been higher stakes across the board. There was a satellite that they were going to capture that had been stranded in orbit. And um, there was a device made, a person was going to stand on the end of the remote arm and put this large capture bar on and just basically latch it to the satellite and then redeploy basically it. Basically atta- attaching a handle, basically. Correct. You're right. 
Well, every time they tried to do it, it just bumped the satellite away. And they ended up having to do a three-person EVA to capture the satellite, which has never been done before or since. We didn't even imagine before that the three people in bulky spacesuits could fit in the airlock. No, no. It was a Herculean effort to make sure we could do it. And in my mind, a spectacular success. But it scared a lot of people that how did we not know that this wouldn't work? It came down to that the simulator on the ground on the air bearing floor didn't accurately simulate the on orbit characteristics. Yeah, I mean, that's a big miss. You had to know that. So this is like an air hockey table, but gigantic, that you can put pieces of hardware on the guys in spacesuits and you can get a sense of if I slide over and, mm-hmm. and push this, this handle towards the satellite, can I grab it? But you know, there's not zero friction on a floor like that. There's always some residual friction. So they, they didn't think to try to measure that residual friction and factor it into how hard the crew was bumping when they hit the satellite. Well, and I don't, I don't recall the specifics of that, but I know that they did, but it wasn't done apparently adequately. There were issues, definitely. Yeah, okay. Because every simulation lies to you in some way. You just have to keep that in the back of your head. Exactly, exactly. So the stakes are super high, uh, both because the last attempt to do something complex with a satellite in orbit, you, you muffed it. It was embarrassing. This one is kind of a bet the agency this is a flagship mission, right. flagship vehicle, the Hubble Space Telescope. You know, NASA fought for it and argued for it for decades to get it in orbit and then had this massive oopsie discovered. And it's not long after Challenger, so there's still some questions in some people's mind. There's questions in the air about whether you just ought to button up NASA and, you know, be done with it. Is that how it felt to you? Uh, yeah. Yeah, that pretty much sums it up. Say a little more about what it takes to come the engineer sitting at a console in mission control, directing, in your case, the spacewalking activity. What, what does it take to get there? You're already an engineer. You're working on Hubble. You're an experienced person. You don't just walk in that room and take a seat. No, there's, there's extensive training that you go through in all of the systems. For instance, I, I had grown up as what we call a task flight controller, doing the developing the tools, the hands-on aspects of that aspect. But I cross-trained in the systems or the suit and the airlock. Um, That was a a requirement in order to get into the front room during the actual EVA itself. So I had to cross-train to become an instructor in that aspect of it. So, you know, I would be able to understand what was going on if we had a suit malfunction. And then you're, you're learning about all the other disciplines in the room that you're going to be interacting with, the environmental folks you know, who are providing everything for the airlock. Water and oxygen. Correct. All of the other shuttle systems, the communications. Uh, So you do a lot of training. You do simulations in mission control. Um, There's a lot of interdisciplinary technical interchange meetings where you all learn about the issues and you help, you, you understand each other's issues and you resolve them. You develop flight rules going into the mission so that you're not real-time guessing, okay, oh, we got this problem, what are we going to do? Hopefully you've ironed out every single one of those things beforehand, and it's written down in a book, and you go, oh, flip the page, empty them. There's what you call certification simulations. So you have your practice simulations, and then you have days that you go in, and you know that this is your um, dry run, or this is your cert sim, 
and you go in and they throw the kitchen sink at you. Something broke on the spacesuit. The airlock's not working right. right. The tool that the astronauts took out doesn't work. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's years. I couldn't tell you what the average timeline is, but for me, I transferred to Houston in 1988, coming with the wealth of information from the task side. And then I was in the front room December of 1993 for Hubble. So eight years. Yeah. So... What did you love most about, what are your best memories and, and takeaways from your time in Houston? I noticed on the wall behind you a couple of the kind of mementos that many of us left the program with, but on the personal and memory or emotional side, what's on your highlights reel? You know, I didn't, I didn't work a lot in mission control compared to many, many other people because there weren't a lot of EVAs compared to you know, station assembly, those kind of years. By that time, I was in management and not doing that anymore. I, you know, the, what I miss the most is the camaraderie, the working with the folks. I loved my time in mission control, but I loved the times leading up to that, the times going on travel to see flight hardware. I mean, that's amazing. You know, you think about it, going down to the Cape and walking into the actual vehicle you walk into the ONC building. The control building, basically where the launch control center is. Right. And you walk in and you look up and you realize you're looking at shuttle tiles. You're looking at the bottom of the vehicle. You go out into the pad and you ride the elevator up, that the crew rides up and you walk over the, the platform and you go into the payload room for your pad walk down with the crew members right before launch. I mean, those experiences are, are what really stick with me. Would you have gone on a flight yourself if you, do you ever wish you had become, taken the astronaut path? I mean, I'm not kidding myself that I would ever have done that. You know, if somebody told me you have, you can go as a looky-loo and you can train for six months and then go, I would do it in a heartbeat. I would have done it in a heartbeat. Absolutely. I think some people imagine as, you know, sort of celebrity obsessed, maybe as our culture is. It must be hard to be doing all that and not get to go fly. It must grate a bit that you put in all the work and work alongside and don't get to go fly. I, I never detected that any of the flight controllers and trainers that I worked with felt that way. Are you kidding me? We had the greatest jobs. We, you know, we got to work with brilliant people, including, I mean, and I'm not, I'm not just saying astronauts, but I mean, we are surrounded by brilliant minds. We are challenged every day. Every day is different. I mean, who gets to go to work and go dive and then go work with PhDs and MDs and talk about aerospace? And I mean, it was an amazing job. And I could understand why John Q. Public would think that, but I never got that sense from myself when I was working with a crew. And um, even when I was in in the management teams, I never felt that. It was a huge, huge integrated team. And, and it extended beyond Johnson Space Center, certainly. It extended beyond the operations team. You've got the engineering directorate. You've got facilities. You've got safety. You've got the contractor team I consider embedded in all of those. It's not civil servants. It's all contractors and civil servants. And then you've got, you've got, for instance, all of the other centers and the 
you know, the Lockheeds, the Goddards, the Marshalls, every, I mean, it's massive. It's this massive network of people that are all working towards this common goal. And that is just remarkable. Yeah, it's definitely the most genuine, genuine full team effort I've been involved in. There's not a, you know, you're just sweeping the floor. If you're part of making it happen, you're fully a part of the team. Right, right. From, you know, from water boy up to quarterback, it takes all of you to do it. You are all on the team. Or what I often say is, you know, the water boy gets a Super Bowl ring too. I mean, it didn't happen without that person's efforts. Yeah. So what's life like post-NASA? Did you have a post-NASA letdown? Uh, yeah, I, I would definitely say so. I mean, it's definitely a shock to not have that identity. I was very ready to retire. You know, it was definitely time. My husband had retired four years before me, and uh, we were ready to move on. But it's it it's very much a case of, well, wait a minute. Uh, where's my morning email that's going to tell me what happened overnight on the space station? And uh, where are my business cards? Who am I? <laughs> you know? I am definitely enjoying just being Sue Rainwater. For the first time in 40 years, I live close enough to my mother to see her on uh, a weekly basis. And I consider it a privilege to be able to do so. So I'm able to go see her. She lives about an hour and a half away from me. And she's 93 and still doing great. Wow. I tell her all Lucky the time. You. I know. I tell her all the time I'm making up for lost time. So I'm able to do that. And I live close to my sister now, have a great set of friends and live in a beautiful part of the country. One of my goals when I retired was to get away from a coastal county. I don't ever want to be in a hurricane region again. So we do, <laughs> we're, just, we're just enjoying exploring the country and enjoying our family. You know, we have two grandkids. Who we're enjoying watching them grow up. Excellent. Your, your mom's got to be super proud of probably of all you kids, but I bet she brags a lot on her space daughter. Oh, well, she, she's proud of all of her kids, yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, Sue, it's been a delight talking with you again. Thanks for sharing your story and you know, these really neat, deeply personal what's it like to be on the inside reflections on a really remarkable career in the space program. Oh, well, thank you, Kathy. And I, I, it's been uh, wonderful being able to think about it all again. It really was a wonderful ride. Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to kathysullivanexplores.com. This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute. New episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Music, and most everywhere podcasts are found. To be the first to know when the next episode drops, head over to interastra.space.